0: Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org.
1: Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we're talking about war crimes with Jessica Wolfendale and Matthew Talbert. There's a scene in a recent episode of Doctor Who where one of the characters tries to shoot his way out of a field full of snipers. Before he attacks, he invokes one of the world's most popular video games. Call of Duty, he says. I've trained for this. The young man fails, of course, making matters worse, but the setup is a familiar one. We're surrounded by so many images of war that we think we know it. We don't. Video games and actual combat have nothing in common, because no matter how good of a shot someone may become, simulations never involve real decision-making. Video games have no actual consequences. People aren't injured. No one dies. Sport shooting persuades us of a similar fiction, that war is something that can be controlled. All gun collectors think they can handle their weapons responsibly. They all believe that other people are careless, while they are not. So they're all equally surprised when they are the one who shoots someone by accident. Guns are made to kill. They're magnets attracted to death. They bring combat wherever they go. So our pop culture images of war neglect two essential elements of the experience, the inertia of violence and its consequences. They do not adequately communicate how soldiers who were moral agents in their civilian lives morph into tools who are subject to forces that they have no hope of directing. If human beings are creatures defined by our capacity for ethics, then we become inhuman as we become more inhumane. The sacrifice of the combatant is the abdication of some of their personhood. But how much must they give up? This is a question that will guide today's episode. Traditionally, Soldiers are regarded as components of the militaries that house them. They cut their hair and don uniforms to erase their individuality. They march in unison, obey their superiors, and live communally. But the horrors of two world wars and the brutality of Vietnam forced liberal democracies to ask whether those who served in the armed forces retained some decision-making powers. Does a democratic citizen really give up all accountability for his or her actions? The price of freedom is being held responsible for even those actions we commit under duress. To ask this another way, doesn't the most obedient soldier have to be able to determine whether a command is lawful or not? Isn't even the lowliest of subordinates a person first and an agent of the state second? The right to liberty is, at least in theory, inalienable, so surely even combatants are in some sense free. And if this is so, when and how do we punish those who cross the line? How are the individuals in the military to be made accountable for the things that they shouldn't have done even if, and here's the really hard part, even if they didn't know they shouldn't have done them in the first place? An act of war that crosses the threshold of immorality is known as a war crime. Killing civilians, rape, torture, humiliation, violations of the Geneva Convention, these are actions prohibited by international law, acts that are condemned by most world leaders but are still all too prevalent. The more chaotic the war, the more likely the crime. It's no accident that it was the intimate violations of September 11th that motivated the Bush administration to liberalize the American position on torture. Fear, anger, and vulnerability inspire people to forgo the rules. Desperation cancels out discipline. But who is to be held accountable for these breaches? The president, the commanders, the soldiers themselves? If corporations are people, can we not say an army is a person too? And if it is, where does that leave the individuals within it? This brings us back to where we started, asking whether a soldier is still a person. On today's episode, we're considering the great philosophical questions about war crimes. Why do otherwise good people act badly? Who is to be held accountable? How are they to be punished? And what can we do to prevent transgressions in the future? There is, not surprisingly, little agreement on any of this. The conviction that there are war crimes in the first place is fairly new. Yet facing this debate head-on is to recognize what our Doctor Who character learned the hard way, that when we imagine war, we are usually many steps removed from it. And when we have the luxury of personal security, when we are lucky enough to not be fighting, then we show our gratitude by making warfare a little less evil and a touch less brutal. Trying to understand and eliminate war crimes is an optimistic act in the face of people at their most vicious. It is yet another instance of the great endeavor to impose order on chaos and to find good in the midst of bad. Criminality is a uniquely human drive. Thankfully, so is the motivation to eliminate it. And now our guest, Jessica Wolfendale is a professor of philosophy at Marquette University. Matthew Talbert is chair and associate professor of philosophy at the University of West Virginia and senior researcher in the Department of Philosophy at Lund University in Sweden. They're co-authors of the forthcoming book, War Crimes, Causes, Excuses, and Blame. Jessica, Matt, welcome to Why. Thank you. Thank you. We're pre-recording the show today, so we won't be stopping for comments, but please send us your thoughts at asky at post them on Twitter or Instagram at at y Radio Show, or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Radio Show. You can find links to them and find out how to send us questions for future shows at whyradioshow.org. So uh, Jessica and Matt, there's there's something oxymoronic about the term war crimes. Crimes require law. Law requires an authority. Isn't war the absence of law? Isn't war chaos without structure?
2: Well, I think there's a couple way of thinking about that question. So, in one sense, you might think that law only has validity if it can be enforced, and that so the chaos that occurs when wars occur by itself precludes the application of law. Um, And that's not a view, I think, that I share. So, you know, the development of international law raises questions about enforcement, um, but it certainly seems possible, at least in principle, to enforce the law. And we've seen the fact that there are war crimes trials, that enforcement is at least possible to some degree. But I also think there's another way of thinking about that question about whether the law applies to war, which is a, a sort of deeper question about whether war itself is outside morality in some sense. Um, and that was that is a view that some people defend, but it's a view that's, I think, difficult to defend. Since we're talking about a human endeavour that causes such huge amounts of suffering, if there's any realm of human endeavour in which morality is present, it's going to be in war.
1: Why is that? Why isn't war a special case?
2: Well, what would make it a special case, right? So is it a special case because... Uh, Immorality is more likely to happen. Well, if we're importing the idea of immorality there, then we're already importing the idea of morality. Is it a special case because it's common? Uh, Again, we don't we don't think that just because certain actions are common, mean they're outside moral evaluation. Um, and if we think the purpose of moral evaluation, whatever our moral theory is, is partly to do with regulating human relationships and mitigating suffering, then again, it seems very difficult to explain why war should be exempt from moral evaluation.
1: So going back to something you said a moment ago, this notion that law doesn't necessarily need enforcement. I mean, there, there, there's some international law that's and, and laws of war that are governed by treaties, but are you suggesting that there's a sort of a natural law, a law that is good, independent of whether we apply it or whether it works properly, that there's something overarching that we can appeal to when we're talking about war?
2: I I wouldn't use the term natural law because it, it has a very specific meaning in moral philosophy. Uh, but I would say that there's a very long history. of of arguments about moral constraints on war, dating back well to sort of Greek and Roman times. There was discussions about, well, you know, maybe certain actions are morally wrong, and even in the conduct of war. So I certainly, and and we can think about the international law of war as as encoded in in conventions like the Geneva Conventions as in some ways reflecting this pre-existing debate about the moral constraints that apply to war. Now, whether we want to think of those moral constraints as grounded in some kind of natural moral sense is a is a different question. But there is no doubt that there is a long history of, you know, argument that there are moral constraints on war. Um, and, of course, the debate has been about you know, to what, what these moral constraints consist of. Um, so, you know, so the debates about the morality of war and the morality of conduct in warfare certainly predate attempts to codify those moral constraints through law itself.
1: So, in a certain sense, what you're saying is the question I asked presumed that law establishes the idea of war crimes or or just war. But actually, law the the job of law is to put on paper or whatever uh, the conversations that have already existed, that that this is a discussion that's been going on for a long time, and it's just the legal structure that's catching up.
2: In, in some ways, that's true. I mean, there were developments in international law, well, in sort of the 17th and 18th centuries Um uh, so, and whether the, the general fun, the general relationship between law and morality is very complex and something we probably can't cover in detail today, but, you know, I think one way of thinking about the laws of war in particular is as reflecting and codifying certain pre-existing um, moral claims about constraints on war. I don't think it follows from that that that's the only purpose of the law of war, though, to sort of codify that. Uh, Because some of the laws of war might be also just to do with coordinating activities, just as some ordinary criminal laws don't really codify pre-existing moral beliefs. Rather, they are in place because of the need to coordinate people's activities in a large society. I'm not sure I
1: understand what that means.
2: Oh, I mean, like, well, think about traffic laws, right? I mean, the law that you have to drive on the right side of the road doesn't reflect some pre-existing moral belief that it's wrong to drive on the left. It's just that we needed a law to regulate people's traffic in a society. Um, And so, so the purpose of law can sometimes be just that, right, to do with regulating activity. It doesn't have to be the case that all laws... Uh, reflect or codify pre-existing moral beliefs about the rightness of wrongness of specific actions. Um, So I guess, I mean, I think in the laws of war, most of the laws that we talk about in terms of the treatment of prisoners of war, treatment of civilians, legitimate targets, use of weapons, these do, I think, typically arise from pre-existing moral beliefs about constraints on war. So I think there's probably less cases where these laws are, are about just, well, hey, we need to kind of regulate the movement of people in this international arena.
1: What – I'm I'm still struggling with this. What What would an example be of a law that coordinates uh, people uh, as opposed to moral constraints that would apply to uh, either a single uh, ar- uh, army or different countries at the same time? H- what do those laws look like?
2: Um, well, as I was saying, I'm not sure. I mean I think most of the laws of war maybe don't look like that. But one law might be to do with uh, rules regulating – refugees and I see. duties of institution, like when and, to, and when and under what conditions can refugees from war seek asylum. Um, so some of that's based on a sort of moral belief that refugees have a right to seek asylum, but then there's going to be very logistical issues about how you regulate the movement of people displaced by war. So maybe that's one example. Um, but I do think the core laws of war are much are based on moral constraints or pre-existing moral constraints. That's,
1: that's a really useful example, actually, because... It reminds us that when we're talking about the theater of war, we're talking about more than just the rules of engagement. We're talking more about – we're talking about the collateral damage. We're talking about the the aftermath, all that sort of stuff, which which brings me back, right? In the United States now there's this debate as to um, what to do about refugees and, of course, this is – happening all over the world with the war in Syria and uh, the interactions between the war that uh, Saudi Arabia is having with, with Yemen. And it leads to a connection that you made earlier, which is the earliest discussions, and When the Greeks talked about war, they had different rules of engagement and different consequences for people who they identified as Greeks and people who they identified as non-Greeks, as barbarians, which which is the origin of the word. Isn't war the place where our bigotry becomes the most prevalent where our our tribalism and our nationalism and our contempt for other people, isn't this the place where it is the most manifest and the most violent? And if so, is this question, I don't know, doomed from the start?
3: What do you mean, uh, doomed
1: in what way? I mean, in the sense that, in the sense that you know, I I, I now I'm 49 years old. I've been through. Uh, I, I've read and seen a lot about a lot of wars that I have not fought in. And at each time, the the war heats up. There's more animosity towards the other side, right? If you look at the propaganda of World War One and World War Two, the horrendous caricatures of the Germans, for example, and of course the Germans did that to other people as well. The Vietnam War, uh, in 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 Star Trek, famously. Uh, Gene Roddenberry put an Asian uh, in the front seat of the Starship Enterprise to counter the virulent negative imagery of uh, Asians because of the Vietnam War. War brings with it the rhetoric of hatred, the rhetoric of, of separatism, the rhetoric of otherness. And so I guess the question I'm asking and I think what a lot of listeners will be asking is since war tends to bring out the, the worst in people – isn't a discussion about morality too optimistic for those circumstances?
3: Uh, well, to get back to the first points that Jessica is making, it it seems clear to me that there's no realm of human conduct that's uh, off limits when it comes to moral assessment. Uh, you could you could make the moral assessment that everything is permitted in war, but that's just to make a moral assessment about warfare. It's not to say that it's for some reason beyond the realm of assessment. I mean, all human action seems open to uh, our appraisal. Now, we might disagree in our appraisals, and maybe I think part of what you're getting at is that uh, it may be impossible to uh, reach agreement, but that in itself doesn't necessarily cause us to question our own moral assessments.
2: I think, too, it sounds like what you're asking is, is whether we think there's any point in applying moral concepts to war if we feel like these concepts... Will never actually change the brutality of war. Mm-hmm. So, so I, th- I think that's a slightly separate question from the question about, you know, whether we subject war to moral evaluation. Because I don't think we have to assume that the purpose of moral evaluation is to then bring about a change. I mean, we can certainly hope that it has that effect, um, but it doesn't seem to be that the the fact that it may be very difficult to change behavior in war shouldn't lead us to think, well, therefore, there's no point in moral evaluation or uh, moral criticism about the conduct of war. Uh, and indeed, the fact that you know, we have started to understand the ways in which bigotry and prejudice and hatred contribute to war crimes uh, itself tells us that you know evaluating these issues has led us to understand this, this contribution to destruction and has provided a reason to think that we need to think about how to mitigate that. Right. But why would we care about that if we just felt, well, there's no point? So, um, I mean, I do think you're right that war is one of the arenas of human behaviour in which, you know, bigotry and hatred and prejudice manifest themselves in the, in the most destructive forms. Um I don't think that means that there is no point or purpose to therefore talking about moral constraints. If anything, I think it means that it's even more important to to talk clearly about moral constraints on war because even though you may not be able to change people's bigotry, you can at least, and particularly if we're talking about codifying moral constraints in the law and then enforcing the law, you can at least ensure that there are limits to the destruction that they can cause or at least that there is appropriate punishment um, and punishment for war crimes sends a normative message right, about the fact that, well, hey, no, it's not okay for for you to treat your enemy like this, even if you view your enemy as subhuman. So so I think there are a couple of different questions going on there about what we think the purpose of thinking morally about war is um, and then how we want to deal with the fact that war does seem to bring out these incredibly destructive tendencies in human thinking.
1: So in, in a sense... Uh... What you're suggesting is that the problems about uh, around war crimes and, 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 and thinking about them and thinking about the morality of war is really just the same problem that we have with almost all philosophical inquiry, right? First of all, uh, we hope to change behavior. Uh, if we can't hope to change behavior, we hope to send what you called a normative message, this moral uh, claim that what you're doing is wrong. So even if we can't stop you, we want you to know that it's wrong. Or the third is just simply, it's interesting and it's worth talking about. And so even if, in the worst case scenario, we can't do anything, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider it, reflect on it, learn from it, and see what the consequences of learning itself are. So in that sense, it's not just not a special case in the moral realm, but it's also not a special case in the philosophical realm because we're just applying the philosophical method to a particular set of problems. Is that right?
0: Uh, yes,
2: yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I'll just clarify that with, you know, I think there are some people who argue that uh, war does raise some distinctive ethical issues because it's a collective act, because it raises problems about. I mean, you talked about earlier in the introduction about the relationship between individual soldiers and the military, uh, and some of those might be unique to the context of war. So, in that sense, war could raise some unique ethical issues. But I don't think war as a as an activity itself is is therefore is somehow distinct from other realms of human behaviour that we think are subject to moral evaluation.
1: Does. Does the way that we consider what a war crime might be or the morality of war in general change as we fight wars in different manners? So, for example, what I mean is in the Revolutionary War, battles were planned in advance. Uh, The generals arranged to meet and the, the armies would meet on either side of a field, for example. People would be sitting on the side and having a picnic and then they would say march and they would shoot at each other. In World War I, we had trench warfare that was marred by, among other things, gas attacks, which had uh, led to serious conversations afterwards. World War II, we had the blitzkrieg. Vietnam, we had a guerrilla war. Uh, is is how we talk about war crimes fluid as the wars we fight are? or is there a general consistency amongst the questions over time and amongst the, the, the categories of what's permitted and what's not?
3: I think the general questions are going to remain the same. What's a legitimate target? Is a response proportional? Are certain weapons beyond the bounds of what's acceptable? But the weapon systems, of course, are going to change. So we have uh, – drone strikes and aerial bombardment and nuclear weapons and chemical warfare. But uh, so, so the, 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 the questions, I think, remain largely the same, but the systems to which those questions are applied change as uh, technology changes.
2: And they're also sensitive to to broader social changes in moral thinking. So, you know, views about, for example, humanitarian intervention. I mean, that's a very... John Stuart Mill actually did write a paper on humanitarian intervention in the 19th century. But prior to that, the idea that there might be a sort of moral duty to to invade another country, to protect citizens of that country from their own government, was really not... Address or raised at all, so so sometimes changes in both the ability, you know, international reach of military forces raise new ethical issues that haven't been previously considered. So in a, in a time where it was perhaps not really feasible for one country to go and invade another country to protect the people of that country, uh, you know, the question didn't come up. But it also came up in the sort of broader discussions about the idea of human rights and the idea of people having equal rights. So in that in that sort of larger background of political and social discussion about the idea of rights, then, of course, changes some of the questions we ask about what war can be used for permissibly and what this tells us about how we ought to treat people who are either combatants or non-combatants or otherwise affected by war, You know, against the background of the idea that maybe people have rights. And and that, again, is a relatively new idea in the history of, of moral thinking, this idea that people might have rights that, that generate a duty. So in that sense, I think it's true that the, the questions that we asked are fluid in the sense that they're responsive to broader social and political changes in moral thinking as well as to, as, as Matt said, you know, technology changes some of the moral questions because it makes certain actions possible that weren't possible before. And actually the idea of, you know, the problems that some people talk about with drones and aerial bombardment came up first with the invention of bows and arrows, which were, you know, as an early form of a distance weapon. And so, you know, some people thought that the bow and arrow was unethical because it was, you know, you could shoot someone who was 100 yards away and he wasn't a threat and that was, you know, and shooting someone who wasn't a threat was basically against the kind of proper conduct of war. So there was actually this
3: debate very early on. And also there was the issue of who was being targeted right. by, you know, now me, a commoner, I could kill somebody who was wealthy enough to buy armor because I, I have a longbow that right. can pierce armor. armor. Right, that's right. That's
1: really interesting. So so the changes in technology brought questions that we think of as inherently modern but aren't at all. And then, right. of course, there's the class issue and, and entitlement issue and all that. When we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about this. I want to talk about the notion of, of rights uh, during war. And in particular, I want to shift the conversation to the perspective of the people who fight in the wars and ask about moral agency and get into the meat of your book about how to justify war crimes, uh, meaning that there are such things, and and the theory that you both uh, propose in assessing and punishing. You are listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We'll be back right after this. (laughs)
0: The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower.
1: You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Jessica Wolfendale and Matthew Talbert about war crimes, asking what they are, uh, how to justify rules against certain conduct, how to punish, how to prevent, a whole list of questions. And as I think about war, I often think about the movie Saving Private Ryan, which uh, tries to be an accurate depiction of what a battle would look like, particularly the first 23 minutes. I'm not a huge fan of the rest of the movie. It feels like a Disney movie in a different guise. But the first battle is pretty impressive. And the most powerful moment for me comes in the very first moments. You start by seeing a group of soldiers coming in over the water and there's no shots fired. There's no guns. And then the front of the troop transport opens up into the water and you hear a little plink. And there's a little hole in the helmet of the first soldier, and he falls into the water. The first death in Saving Private Ryan is almost besides the point. And I find that incredibly important because it forces us to encounter the fact that many soldiers are there just to be bodies you shoot the first line of soldiers so the next line of soldiers can get a few feet further up the beach. And then you shoot them and more soldiers can get further up the beach. And if you have enough people, then the soldiers will get far enough to fight the battle. People are disposable in war. And I have seen few things in cinema that have depicted that more than that moment. So Matt and Jessica, I want to ask you, given the fact that people are inherently disposable in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise, is it imparting too much moral authority on them to hold them accountable for their actions? Aren't they just tools? Aren't they just filler? Haven't they lost their agency to such an extent that to hold them accountable for anything is to expect too much of them?
3: The cases that we're focusing on are precisely instances in which combatants are exercising their agency. So there might be a sense in which they're tools. certainly a sense in which that's true. But it's still the case that they make decisions. And we're particularly interested in the context, context that are outside of active combat. I mean, we agree that in active combat, it's especially difficult to hold people to a high moral standard. But... Outside of active combat, when we have soldiers intentionally inflicting suffering through torture or intentionally killing civilians, intentionally uh, raping or killing prisoners, those are actions that are performed on the basis of judgments about what to do in that context. So we can attribute those judgments to the combatants in question, and our view is that when those judgments that are expressed through the combatants' behavior are objectionable, they can be proper grounds for moral blame on the part of victims, on the part of survivors, on the part of um, third parties.
1: I I want to run something by you because, of course – your book focuses almost exclusively on the cases as you've described, and there's rich discussion. And we'll talk about many of those, including the backgrounds of um, the situ- what we'll call what you call the situationalist and the dispositional arguments. We'll explain what that means in a minute. But I want to run something by you because your answer is different than what I had anticipated. What I imagined you to have said is something along the following: um, Yes. Human beings are fodder in war, but that makes it even more important to regard them as agents when they're alive, that the specialness of people is recognizing them until they're not a person anymore. Is that an absurd position? I know it's not entirely what you talk about in the book, but to what extent is holding people accountable for their agency until the very last moment a prerequisite for regarding soldiers as people first and as soldiers second.
2: I think that does relate. I mean I think you're right that that holding people accountable and acknowledging agency is a crucial part as uh, acknowledging them as persons. And and I I mean the view that you described earlier where we might think, well it's just it's unfair to think that soldiers could be expected to know whether an order is illegal because they're just cogs in a machine. Um, fails to do justice to the fact that soldiers, in fact, and not just in the context of war crimes, but soldiers in war generally, actually do think seriously about the situations in which they act. Um, And so to sort of write soldiers off as kind of blank slates who are just, you know, moulded by the military machine and, and regarded as fodder, doesn't actually reflect the reality of the soldiers, uh, at least in terms of the, at least in relation to the soldiers that I've read about or talked to, that that way in which they think about what they're doing. So, and an enlargement of agency would also, I think, mitigate partially the you know one of the big criticisms of World War One was the fact that soldiers were treated so obviously as just literal, you know, cannon fodder, and and that for a lot of people was one of the reasons why. Um, that the current sort of military culture, say, in England and, the, and Australia needed to be changed because it so egregiously disregarded the the personhood of soldiers. And there might be lots of reasons for that to do with the class system in England and Australia, which we don't need to get into. But, you know, one of the things that we think is really important in thinking about this is is how when you look at war crimes, what you see is soldiers actually thinking actively and, and justifying their actions by relation to moral reasoning. So there's 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 no basis for the idea that soldiers are these sort of these hapless tools who have no agency when it comes to the conduct of war. Um, and one thing I just wanted to add too is that actually this question about whether soldiers are just mere tools for the... The military again—it's a very old question. There's actually debates about this going back to Augustine and Aquinas uh, in relation to whether soldiers should refuse to fight in some cases, and there's disagreement. Uh, you know, some people did make the argument that the soldier is just the just the, the tool, and so the soldier can't be blamed for fighting in an unjust war. Or, but other other thinkers, even at these early times, said that no—that there are cases where soldiers. You know, have a duty to think about the morality of what they're doing, and that they don't get off the hook just because they are, you know, lower down in the chain of command. So again, this is a question which has very old roots in debates about sort of the the rights and obligations of soldiers and the moral status of soldiers as well. Is there
1: a consensus on why soldiers do bad things? I mean, you have people who as civilians would be presumably otherwise good people who would never engage in any kind of atrocity. Uh, yet when people become soldiers, they often act differently. Is this a settled question or is there a controversy as to why people in these circumstances engage in acts that they would otherwise morally disapprove of?
2: Well, I think it's helpful to distinguish of two different kinds of situations in which that might occur. So I think there is consensus uh, Brought you know broad consensus perhaps that you know that there are certain stresses on a combat situation which can lead to the commission of atrocities. So you know we call these heat of battle crimes, right? That the the intense sort of noise, fear, fatigue, stress of combat can be an explanatory factor in certain kinds of war crimes, where uh, where military personnel sort of break or crack under pressure and shoot a prisoner of war or something like that. Um, but there, where there is less consensus and where we think our book is particularly valuable is in, in explaining these more, in some ways, a harder question, which is, well, okay, so maybe that accounts for these sort of heap of battle crimes. But actually, you know, the kind of war crimes that we cause far more suffering overall are these institutionalised policy-driven war crimes like genocide and a torture programme, and there we want to know, well, how do these good people, how do ordinary soldiers come to participate in something like that, which, as you say, you know, they're doing something which you had you asked them prior to their joining the military, they would have said, no, of course, that would be wrong. So how does so that process, the process by which ordinary people come to view something like torture as being permissible or even, you know, justified or genocide as being justified even, that's There's, I think, less consensus about how that process comes about.
3: I just want to emphasize uh, the last point that Jessica was making. What we've tried to do is to explain the cause of war crimes, largely in terms of combatants coming to see forms of behavior as permissible. And that's what explains them uh, participating in these behaviors. And that's as opposed to a different view that suggested it's really the environment or the situation in which the soldier finds him or herself, that's eliciting this behavior without, in a way, the participation of the agent. By explaining the behavior in terms of the combatant seeing it as permissible, we're trying to bring the actor uh, back onto the stage. And that's what's going to allow us to make moral assessments and culpability assessments of the actors. So
1: let's talk a little bit about that. You spend uh, the earlier chapters in, in your book uh, articulating first the, the situationalist argument and then and then you criticize. You talk about Stanley Milgram, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Would you talk a little bit about the background research that argues for the approach that it's a product of environment so then we can talk about where that falls short and what the other options are?
3: Well, so Stanley Milgram's uh, famous... Uh experiments on obedience were partly motivated by uh, this phenomenon that the, uh, we observed with the Holocaust. You had a lot of ordinary Germans participating in this uh, this, this effort to, to exterminate uh, European Jewry. Now, how is it that you got normal people to behave that way? And what Milgram took himself to show, and, and a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the experiment, this is the one in which uh, you... you Subjects are replying to an advertisement in the newspaper, and they think that they're participating in an experiment on learning. And it turns out that they're asked to deliver shocks to a, uh, a, a so-called pupil who's giving responses to questions. And as they give more incorrect responses, they, they receive higher voltage shocks. And the subjects in the experiment continue to uh, administer these shocks over the objection of the, the supposed learner or pupil and what's interesting about that what what uh so it gets it gets
1: it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger right. and right. yet they keep doing it even though it's causing the the person tremendous pain or it, you know is supposed to but doesn't actually because it's
3: right fixed, yeah right? yeah there, there right. are no shocks but they continue to administer what they believe to be painful shocks over the strenuous objections of the person who's supposedly receiving these shocks but what's interesting is how little effort is required to elicit that sort of destructive behavior in the subjects. Now, what's causing that to happen? On the one hand, there seems to be a tendency to obey authority. And it's also the case that there's a conflict between that tendency, a tendency to obey authority, and a tendency to not want to inflict suffering on other people. But it seems that for most agents, for most of the people, most of the subjects in these experiments, the uh, inclination, the tendency, that the disposition to obey authority seems to win out and wins out relatively easily over what we might like to think of as more virtuous traits. So a lot of people have, put a great deal of emphasis on the Milgram experiments and other experiments in that vein to suggest that we have this inclination. It's not an inclination towards uh, causing harm or hurting people, but it's an inclination to do the things that other group members are doing, to do the thing that we've been told to do by somebody that we uh, view as a legitimate authority. So that's, that's at least part of the sort of situationist account that social psychologists have given and that some philosophers have given as well more recently. And
1: so the argument is that people, when they are placed in an environment with certain expectations and norms, will mold to that and somehow become morally different, that, 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 their, that their moral core is flexible enough that they can't really be blamed as an individual, that it's the situation, that it's the environment that does this. Is, is, is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's a more sophisticated version of the view because the way that you articulated it just now involved the person coming to see the behavior as permissible or required. And that wasn't something that, that Milgram suggested, right? For Milgram, it was odd that the subjects seemed to be acting against their own moral values. Hmm. But But you're correct that – Philosophers, when they've gotten a hold of the social psychology literature, one of the ways they've interpreted it in the context of war crimes is to say that what's happening is these pressures, these social pressures, are causing people's moral values to uh, to be to be altered.
2: Right. So John Dorris and Dominic Murphy, who we talk about in the book a little bit, you know, in their view, uh, you know, military training, military culture. Uh, undermines what they call soldiers' normative competence, which is their ability to understand and reflect appropriately to the moral environment. And so in their view, soldiers might come to believe that, say, torture is permissible through the product of these different forces, and and they conclude from that that soldiers, therefore, are generally excused because they have no control over the acquisition of these beliefs and uh, that the, the situational... Uh, context to which they're exposed during military training and culture sort of undermines their ability to, you know, form what we might think of as correct or appropriate or, or evaluate moral considerations in a way that would ordinarily be the case. So, so
1: you made a distinction, Matt, uh, between people, as Milgram described, it, who are acting against their moral. Uh, Points of view, and then the more sophisticated notion that people develop a different moral point of view. What's the difference between those two, and why is that important?
0: Well, I
2: mean, with the Milgram experiments, it's important to know that, you know, for even the subjects who continue to give electric shocks all the way to the very last, uh, highest voltage, a lot of them displayed. Distress and and conflict while they were giving the shots. So it's really quite fascinating if you look at the videos, says you know, some of them are just showing sort of nervous laughter like that. It's they they they're experiencing a conflict, uh, and it's, it's mysterious a little bit why they they feel they can't resolve that conflict in favour of stopping. But it certainly does seem true that they're not like oh okay well this is the right thing to do, so I'll keep giving the shocks and and so forth. So in that sense, that would be one difference. Whereas what we were talking about as a case where you know soldiers learn to view these activities as morally permissible and so there isn't a conflict anymore
3: and with so milgram ran several different versions of his experiment right and so, in the f- versions of the experiment where he lets the subject set the voltage meter, determine how much shock they're going to give, you get a lot less obedience, or you, uh, you get a lot less uh, shocking, and the, the, the voltages aren't nearly as high. When you insert a distance between the uh, the the the, the, ex- the person who's taken to be an experimenter and the subject, say so it's done over the phone, they say give the shock. There, you get a lot less obedience as well. You're going to get much more obedience, though, if you've gotten the subject to think that what they're doing is right. In the context in which they're acting against their own values, you're not going to get the obedience in a wide range of circumstances. But if you can convince a combatant that uh, torture is is permissible, is required, or that we ought to be... Uh, raping women so as, as part of a, a campaign of ethnic cleansing, then you're going to be able to elicit that behavior in all kinds of contexts, even when people aren't acting under direct authority, when they're not being explicitly ordered to do the thing by somebody who's in the room. So as a training technique, if you can get people to view the behavior as required, you're going to get a lot more conformity.
1: I'm tempted to ask, but I'm going to hold off this question for a little bit, I'm tempted to ask which is worse, whether or not it's worse to do things even though you're opposed to them uh, morally, or whether it's worse to sort of develop a new morality. But but let's put that aside, because I want to ask, this seems pretty persuasive, that that environment molds people or forces people to do things that they wouldn't have done otherwise – Yet the two of you object to this. You don't think that this is an adequate account of war crimes. Why?
2: Well, uh, sort of a couple of reasons. So so first we think that one of the problems with the situationist account is that it, it can't it has a lot of trouble explaining one of the realities of war crimes, which is that war crimes perpetrators show really quite wide variety in their attitudes and behaviors in relation to what they do. So even perpetrators who are exposed to the same situational forces so went through the same training experience same combat environments. Some perpetrators engage almost kind of enthusiastically in war crimes, but others are much more reluctant. And then there are some soldiers who, despite being exposed to the same situational forces, actually refuse to commit war crimes. So there's quite a lot of diversity at the level of individual perpetrators, but it's very difficult for the situationist account to explain that diversity, given that, according to that account, you know, war crimes occur because these situational forces kind of imprint moral beliefs or behaviours onto soldiers. So if that's the case, then why do we get such diversity at the level of individual perpetrator behaviour? So that's one problem, we think. And the other is that we think that it just doesn't do justice to the fact that, you know, when you actually start looking at war crimes, it's just not the case that, that soldiers are these sort of blank states upon which you know, moral beliefs are imprinted and then they act just according to these imprinted moral beliefs. You know, soldiers who engage in war crimes talk about and justify and think about their actions in ways that are complex, morally complex, and they make reference to their own individual, unique sort of goals and values and self-conceptions. So, you know, again, to sort of just describe war crimes as the product of these forces acting on soldiers, as if soldiers are kind of just passive puppets, then sort of pushed around by these forces, neglects that aspect of war crimes. So I wonder if you talk
1: about um, what you call the dispositional account and how it counters this other point of view. But in doing so, first, is this another example of the nature-nurture debate, Are we having the conversation that some people are naturally this, or some people, or we're product of the environment? To what extent is this that, and to what extent is it something else?
3: I don't think it maps on too neatly to that nature-nurture distinction. Um, The idea, as Jessica was just putting it, what we're interested in is this account, the situationist account as applied to war crimes which suggests that people are pushed around by the environment that they're in but that's not the same thing as nurture i mean so nurture suggests the environment in which you were raised, the sort of formative influences to which you were subjected. But the situational factors that we're interested in are uh, much more immediate. The fact that you're in this room with five other people who are acting in a certain way seems to incline you to act similarly, seems to incline you to ignore things that otherwise you would notice and, and vice versa. So that's not exactly a, a nurture. Now, what we want to suggest is that that picture – is inadequate because a better account of why we uh, observe the why we seem to see situational influences is that the situation is filtered through an agent's own perspective that's part of at least of the dispositional account but again that's not what exact- what, 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 what does
1: that mean that that's fairly abstract what does that mean
3: so well you know one example that we uh, we use at one point is how the same situation can mean different things to different people. What the situation will mean will depend on how it's construed by the individual. So an example that we use from a couple other author, authors is is a dinner party. So for the host of the dinner party, it's a a context in which their social status is measured so that makes them have certain reactions to certain features of the environment for the guests it's just a context for socialization so what's happening in the environment will mean different things to them for the local politician it's an opportunity to gladhand. and so different things things that are happening in the environment we mean different things to him than it will mean to the other people so the idea of what people bring to the context is is what we're interested in, again, because that gets the agent into the picture and makes it less a story of individuals just being pushed around by forces over which they have no control.
1: It makes me think of a conversation I had with my students fairly recently where I was saying that from their perspective, the class is an individual project, that they're focused on their grades, they're focused on their individual learning, they're focused on on how tired they are that day. But during class, I think of the class as the fundamental unit. And yes, I'm going to look and see which students need to participate more, et cetera. But we are people who are sharing the same experience but uh, or, or the same event but we are experiencing them very differently because of what we bring to the table
2: right yeah that's right that's a good illustration of what we're getting at so it also means that we can't there isn't going to be a way of describing what the situation is that's independent from the individual perspective of people in that situation. Say so a little for, more about that, yeah, Well, that's so to really take the, the, the dinner party case, you know, we might think just looking at it, uh, you know, from the outside, we go, oh, a dinner party. A dinner party is a social event. This is a social situation, right? And we might use that characterization to then try and predict the behavior or understand the behavior of people at the dinner party table, right? Because we've imposed this interpretation of the situation just by looking at the objective features of a situation. It's people having dinner together. Um, But clearly, if we do that, we're going to actually fail to understand how, well, the people in that situation aren't all going to view the dinner party as just a social event, right? And so we're not going to be able to correctly understand their behaviour without understanding, oh, for this guest... It's an opportunity to like schmooze and and raise money for their political campaign. For this guess, it's about raising their social status. Um, so you know we're actually going to fail to understand people's behavior in the situation if we fail to actually, take account of their construals of the situation.
3: Some, the way this is put sometimes is to say that the real situation is both these objective features plus the construals that agents are bringing to it. You're not going to understand how people or why people are responding as they are without understanding both of those uh, aspects.
1: So how do we map this onto war crimes? How does this change our view of, of the kind of thing that we're talking about?
3: Well, it does
2: mean that we want to be cautious about approaches that to say, "Ah, well, uh, people participate in torture because um you know they've been taught to believe that torture is right, and and so you know they're all going to see it as a, a particular duty and that's why they do it. Um whereas when you look at the behaviour of individual perpetrators, so this gets back to my earlier point that a problem with the situationist view is this failure to account for differences in perpetrator behaviour is that we're not going to understand the differences we see unless we understand, oh, for this torturer, you know, they see uh, being a good torturer as being self-controlled and disciplined and and so forth, but this torturer views torture as a kind of vengeance against an enemy, and so they are adapting the narratives about torture in light of that particular personal set of beliefs, and that's going to affect their behaviour, right? So that's going to allow us to see get a better understanding of these differences between perpetrators sort of on the ground, as it were. Um, so there's two... There's an example we talk about in the book about these two soldiers who served in uh, units in Russia and Poland that were engaged in mass shootings in World War II, German units. And, and one soldier who, who wrote diaries at the time, you know, he 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 describes it as being, well, it's this job I have to do and I don't really like it. It's not very soldierly, but, you know, it's what I've been ordered to do, so I'll do it and I'll do it well. Um, and another another soldier, again, very similar situational, ex- very similar external situational context. He found it extremely distressing to engage in these shootings, but he saw it as being part of this, you know fighting an existential threat against the German people. So he saw his role as actually overcoming his distress, so he became better at killing because he you know was framing and understanding his behaviour in the context of this idea as, the genocide as being a, a form of national self-defense against an existential threat. So there's you know really significant differences there in how these two soldiers understood and made sense of what they were doing.
1: So let's take a specific example, one you mentioned in the book, and one that'll be very familiar to most of our listeners. The the. Treatment of prisoners in Abu Ghraib in uh, Iraq, not Afghanistan, right, Iraq? And um, and uh, and it came out after the fact that there are all these photos of, of the prisoners being humiliated. Uh, some of the prisoners were uh, shocked with uh, t- attached electrical cords. Uh, there was rape. There was all sorts of humiliation and, and abuse. And this came out and people were horrified. So... We call Jessica and Matt into the room and we say, "Okay, we have to deal with this. How do we understand it? What do we do about it? What do Jessica and Matt say? What's the process? What's the procedure? How do we investigate this? Uh,
3: What exactly are we interested in? Are we interested in assessing culpability at this point or – Or understanding how it happened?
1: I guess that I, I guess that's the first answer to the question, right? I mean, <laughs> the first answer is okay. So you have a series of questions that you're interested in. One is how did it happen? Another is who is responsible? Is there are there other questions on that list that you have to that 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 are on the agenda that you have to ask?
3: Well, yeah. How do you keep it from happening again? How do okay. you militate against that kind of behavior? That's that's something that we're Okay, Certainly so in. so
1: what happened? Why did it happen? Uh, who's responsible for it? Um, and how do you hap- and how do you um, stop it from happening again? What's the next step?
2: after, I mean, all, of, <laughs> after yeah, we've mean, all. of those, or should we answer well, no, those first?
3: <laughs> okay, so
1: I, I guess I'm not being clear enough, but but yes, yeah, so let's take let's take the um the culpability question. Let's take the what happened question okay. first. Okay. How do you ask how do you answer the question is it a war crime first? Um because if it's not a war crime, we don't need you to and we'll pay other consultants, right? Mm-hmm. So um so how do you determine whether it's a war crime or not?
2: Well, on one level, uh, you know, whether it's a war crime in the kind of technical sense is dependent, does it violate the current international laws of war? And, you know, despite the Bush administration's attempt to, to sort of legalise torture, it did violate the international laws of war. So I'm willing to kind of just, you know, say that, yeah, this is a war crime, um, and I certainly, I don't think we can need to get into an argument on justification of torture. Whatever, if you do believe torture is justified, say, in rare cases, none of those justifications are going to apply to Abu Ghraib, right? That whatever, you know, case of justified torture you come up with, it's very unlikely to look like what happened at Abu Ghraib. So, Abu Ghraib um, is, you know, could pretty much agreed to be a war crime, Um so that's one answer. In terms of the what happened, I mean, what was interesting at the time is that— oh, Let me interrupt
1: for just a second. Yep, sure. um, so when people used—I can't remember uh, uh, the, the phrase enhanced interrogation techniques right? right to substitute torture, yep. what the, are they trying to get out of that discussion? Are they trying to say, no, it's not torture. We all accept that torture is illegal. It's enhanced interrogation. Is the goal of that to define away the problem?
2: Well, the the goal of the Bush administration, and this comes out in the torture memos that were prepared um, for the Bush administration by the Office of Legal Counsel, there there were sort of two strategies. One was to say, these techniques don't count as torture, so therefore they're not illegal. But the other strategy was to say, even if they do count of torture, we can plead necessity, we can plead sort of emergency, and so there'll be an excuse for using this technique. So they kind of tried to provide two separate, you know, cover their bases, legally speaking. Uh, but certainly the, the interrogation was intended to be, well, these are techniques that don't meet the legal definition of torture, so therefore they're fine. Um, and, of course, you know, legal scholars have very effectively pulled apart the legal reasoning and all the torture memos. Um, But you know, so that that was the strategy. But again, what happened in Abu Ghraib? These weren't examples of enhanced interrogation, right? Right.
3: The the talk about enhanced uh, interrogation—that's more applicable to the professionalized environment of Guantanamo Bay and so forth than it is to Abu Ghraib,
2: right? Which isn't, which again, and I and I think those two things are not distinct, though, right? So one of the ways in the problems of. The focus on Abu Ghraib has been is that seeing it as that this is just this group of people behaving atrociously. How do we understand this behaviour of this this group of bad apples, right? And so so one approach was to sort of account for their behaviour in terms of failures of individual self-control on their part, uh, the, in the pointing to the fact that they were under bombardment, that it was stressful. So there's a, a very... Um, individualized explanation which doesn't connect what they were doing to this wider torture program in which torture was authorized and justified and, and, um, uh, sanitized, as it were. So this so, leads
1: to a question about the phrase bad apples. Right? Aren't there people who are going to say, uh, okay, so there are people who say, these are bad apples, they're not representative of the American military as a whole. And then there right. are other people who say, no, um, this is institutional, it's structure, any soldier in that position is going to be pushed into doing that. How do you negotiate those two positions? And do you have to negotiate it to figure out who's culpable, how to deal with this as a war
3: crime. Now, we we do not need to negotiate that. So it's part of the feature of our view that even if the bad apple explanation weren't accurate, the individuals may still will be culpable. The bad apple account is one that attempts to isolate culpability to identify specific individuals as culpable because they're acting out their own bad natures. Now we agree that if that were the story, yeah, they would be culpable. But what we want to insist upon is that even if that isn't the story, even if there are situational forces in play that would incline any number of other soldiers in their place to have acted similarly, that doesn't necessarily undermine culpability because you're still, because the way that the situa- situational forces bring about the behavior is by affecting people's values. And their judgments about what they have reason to do and their judgments about ways people may be treated. Once you have people acting in such a way that they're expressing their values and their reason judgments through their behavior, you've got grounds for culpability on our view.
1: So a person becomes culpable if they're acting on their own values as opposed to on the values of someone else? Is is that right?
3: Well, it's not possible to act on the values of somebody else. Right? Mm, we'll only talk about only, that. only my values can inform my behavior. Now, you can hold a gun to my head and you can say you've got to act the way that I want you to, and I may act the way that. You want me to, but that's only because I've judged that I've got reason to do that, given the coercive pressure you're applying towards me. Now, I think I think what you're getting at, though, is the idea that, well, maybe it's just the values of the higher-ups and that that's somehow affecting the behavior of people uh, lower down the totem pole. It's affecting their behavior, but in a way that doesn't really implicate them. And that's the sort of picture that we're pushing against. The way that you get this bad behavior, the way that you're able to – to uh, uh, effectively organize a system so that you get these outcomes is by instilling bad values in people who are lower down in the chain of command. Now, a question is, well, it's not their fault that they have those values because they've been exposed to this – this fairly disciplined and effective strategy for getting them to have these values. How can you you hold them responsible? And our answer is we don't hold them responsible for having those values. But insofar as their actions express values that now belong to them, it's fair to hold them accountable for acting that way. It's fair in particular for victims to resent the treatment that they've been subjected to, intentional and willing treatment in these cases.
1: I I, I, I want to follow up on that in just a second, because that's incredibly interesting. But you very very quickly passed over a really important move that uh, folks who are familiar with the history of philosophy will have seen uh, Thomas Hobbes do, someone like Jean-Paul Sartre do, which is this notion that We are free under duress. So you said a person um, uh, holds a gun to their head and they say, do this, and they're still responsible because they value their life more than the gun. Imagine – our listeners imagine if someone held a gun to your head and said, you are going to drop a bomb and kill 5,000 toddlers or we kill you – we hope that most people will say, fine, kill me, I'm not going to do it. There is this value choice, even when there's a gun to your head, because you have to choose your life over other people's pain, suffering, and life. And so what you're arguing suggests that the values go really, really deeply, including how much we value our own experience, our own pain, our own choices uh, over other people, right? I mean, that's why the agency is so deep, because there are times when we do think that it's appropriate to choose other people over ourselves. And of course, that's what we ask soldiers to do constantly.
3: Um, right. Yeah. So in the coercion example, I, I am willing to say that, yeah, you're responsible because you're making a choice, but it doesn't follow that you're blameworthy. You're blameworthy only if the choice that you made was a bad one. And, and in some cases, you're not What's even responsible. What's that difference? That's a so, subtle difference.
1: What's so, that difference. So
3: let's say you, you hold the gun to my head and I say, ah, Well, there are a few ways this can go. One is you hold the gun to my head and that, to use Harry Frankfurt's language, that stampedes me. I just do what you want me to do without even thinking about it. I don't even make a judgment. I'm so terrified. In that case, maybe I'm not responsible because I'm not acting on my own judgments. But let's suppose that I'm pretty cool and you hold a gun to my head and I say, ah, he's got a gun to my head. I'm choosing to do what he wants me to do. Well... What's going to have to be the case for me to avoid blameworthiness is that what you're asking me to do isn't out of proportion with the threat that you're uh, imposing on me. You know, if you if you say um, you force me to engage in armed bank robbery and if I don't, you've threatened to, uh, you know, Punch me really hard on the arm. Well, that's not, I can't make, make use of that excuse because what you've gotten me to do is so out of proportion with the threat that, that you've imposed on me. But if it's you and you, you say, if you don't engage in some petty shoplifting, I'm going to murder you and your family, and that's a, a threat that I have reason to think you'll, you'll carry out, well, that, that would seem to get me off the moral hook, even if I've acted deliberately. Even if I've chosen to do this thing that you've asked me to do, the threat was so uh, profound and so uh, believable that it seems to justify my behavior.
2: I mean, we could think of a distinction between being responsible, being blameworthy. It is in terms of, you know, you're responsible for what you do when your actions are subject to moral appraisal. Now, that appraisal could be positive or negative. It doesn't follow that it has to result in blame. But when your action is sufficiently under your control, say, expressive of your will in in sufficiently expressive of your will, that, yeah, then the question arises, well, are you blameworthy or not? So in that sense, we could just think of responsibility of that to distinguish cases where, say, you uh, have a seizure and you cause harm, where we just think, well, you're not responsible because your action wasn't even under your control in any relevant sense. So that could be one way of thinking about the distinction between you know, being responsible versus being blameworthy. And certainly our view, we don't typically think that Uh, You know, duress cases are cases where you are necessarily blameworthy. Um, There are are cases in our view where if you cause harm under duress, you may not be blameworthy. You might be still responsible because your actions might be under your control, but they may not express a uh, ill will. They may not express objectionable attitudes to the people that you harm. And so in that sense, you wouldn't be blameworthy.
1: So back to Abu Ghraib. So we've established it's a war crime. Uh, and we're in the process of establishing whether or not people are culpable. Are they culpable because they are free and they could have said no and they're acting on their own values? Is that where we left off, or is there more to it than that?
2: Well, for our account, it's not that we don't require that they could have said no, right? Well, there's tough ways of thinking about that. Um, In our view, it's not the case that they have to have – being able to hold alternative moral beliefs, right? In our view, we could say, yeah, they believed this was okay um, and maybe they sincerely believed it was okay to treat prisoners like this. Maybe they had no control over how those beliefs were acquired, But, you know, their actions towards the prisoners are voluntary, under their control, and they express you know, highly objectionable attitudes towards the people that they harm. And so those are all reasons to say they are, they are accountable, they're blameworthy for what they did. And it doesn't really matter on our account whether, you know, back during their military training, they somehow they, they couldn't have helped but acquire these beliefs. What matters is, you know, at the point of action, they, they are acting freely and, they, and their actions express their attitudes towards their victims.
1: Would this be a different situation if the perpetrators were child soldiers? Uh, There's, you know, the United States does not have 12, 13-year-old soldiers, uh, but there are many places in the world where they have them, and even younger in some instances. Is this scenario the consequence of adulthood, or would children be held to the same standard?
3: I think it's still the case that you can enter the U.S. military at the age of 17 if you have parental consent. At least that has been the case. Uh, And then by standards of international law, you're a child soldier because you're under the age of 18. Hmm. What we've said about child soldiers is that they're often not responsible. They're often not responsible because they're often quite young. They're often subject to uh, brutal coercion. They have often been abducted from their families and forced to fight. But on the other hand, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes a child soldier is 17. Sometimes a child soldier has volunteered and uh, decided to commit atrocities without being forced to do so. And in those cases, we think you get moral responsibility. So are – and this feels like such a simple, basic question, but
1: are war crimes – to be assessed, or are the perpetrators of war crimes to be assessed on a case by case basis? Can you evaluate them as a group, um, or is it really like a criminal case in the United States is supposed to be anyway? That um, that you are looking at each individual separately, uh, and you can't make any decision unless you understand both the person and the parameters that led to the decision to act.
3: Well, that's the way we've been treating uh, these cases and discussions. But that's, we recognize, pretty idealized, right? So we're saying, if you want to know whether or not an individual is blameworthy, then these are the kinds of questions you'll ask. What were their motivations? Did they act willingly? What were they intending to do? Now, there are all kinds of Considerations that might make it so that you don't ask those questions in a legal context. Maybe you want to have a a legal decision that covers a broader group of people. But what we've been interested in, for the most part, is this question of individual moral responsibility.
2: That's it. I think. I mean, I think our view is a little different from, say, so Doris and Murphy, for example, think that the situationist view means that the presumption should be that war crimes perpetrators are not responsible because of you know, their arguments about the effect of situational forces. So I guess we could say on our view that you know, the presumption might be different, So maybe the presumption is, you know, unless we have clear indication of, say, the presence of coercion or some other you know, clearly excusing condition, the presumption might be a presumption in favour of responsibility. Um, but again, that's certainly defeasible, like it is going to depend on a case-by-case case basis Particularly, we're talking about holding people legally accountable.
1: So that's that, That's interesting. So one of the ways that war crimes may or may not differ from criminal prosecution in the United States is whether or not we decide to start with a presumption of innocence or not. Do we start by assuming uh, that a person is culpable or do we start by assuming that a person isn't culpable because of the situation?
2: Well, the presumption of innocence, I think, of course, would remain because that's, a, you know, the presumption is that, well, we, we're not going to presume that this person is guilty of the crime of which they're charged initially, right? But I mean, we're talking more of, though, so if you have people who have committed the crimes, right? Um, and so, in that sense, the presumption of innocence uh doesn't quite apply. It's like we're not asking, did this person commit torture? We're saying, well, they did. And now how blameworthy are they? How culpable are they? Right.
1: Sure. So I, so, I, I guess I didn't articulate that right. What I meant was, so when, when Jessica and Matt walk into the room, they presume that the, the, the presumption is that people are culpable for their war crimes and they have to be proven and it has to be argued otherwise. Whereas the other folks you mentioned, if they walked into the room, they would presume that people are not culpable for their war crimes, and then the argument would have to be uh, that no, this is a case in which they are. Is that am I understanding that correctly?
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's you know I don't think we've thought about it in those terms, but that doesn't sound implausible. I mean, suppose <laughs> that we know, we're walking to a room and we know that the person in that room uh, conducted torture. Well, yeah, I suppose I would walk into that room thinking. Okay, I know that you've tortured people. I strongly suspect you're blameworthy. You could tell me a story that showed you weren't blameworthy. Um... But uh, but in most cases, yeah, the torturer is going to be blameworthy. Uh, I would like not, just we, to we,
1: add. Sorry. I just want to add for our our, our audience that the phrase um, "that doesn't sound implausible" is the greatest <laughs> compliment in philosophical circles. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's like yeah, you're right. not completely yeah, wrong. There right. is a circumstance in which you might be right. I'm sorry, Jessica. Please go I, on.
2: All I was saying that we you know we, we're not making any claims in our book about about how we should reform legal accountability. So in that sense, right. I didn't. I don't want. I want to make that clear that we're not saying. Well, therefore, in the legal sense, we should just presume everybody. Right, no,
3: we talking right. about sure. mo- just more um, interpersonal just, moral yeah. blame
2: Yeah, no,
1: that's so, right. So we're getting close to the end, and I want to talk about prevention of war crimes, but I also want to talk about a claim that you make uh, sort of – in anticipation that, that part of the core issue is that war crimes do not show sufficient moral regard for others. That if we find, if we look for a unifying factor uh, on the philosophical level of war crimes, that there is this lack of moral regard. Will you talk a little bit about that and then may we can transition into prevention?
3: Well, that's an artifact of the legal structure, right? It just so happens that the things that are denominated war crimes tend to be these instances in which you get a lack of regard. Things could have worked out differently. But right, so the idea is that Behavior that's blameworthy is behavior that's objectionable in a certain kind of way. And it's objectionable insofar as it expresses a lack of appropriate regard for other people's standing. Now, that can take the form of treating what is people— that, uh,
1: Also, a technical phrase. What does that mean, a lack of appropriate regard for standing? Right.
3: So, so that can take the form of contempt. I have contempt for you. I don't care about the fact that my action is going to injure you. I don't think you have a standing to object to being treated in this way. Uh, that's for me to hold contemptuous attitudes towards you. Or I could just be indifferent to your suffering. It does not re- I know it's going to happen, and it doesn't really register with me one way or the other. Both of those kinds of orientations that we can have towards other people are objectionable by that other person's lights, right? If you treat me in a way that evinces contempt for my su- my standing, you think my suffering doesn't matter, and you treat me in a way that shows me that, that's going to be objectionable from my perspective. And it's going to make it appropriate for me to target you with the responses uh, that are embodied in moral blame or the responses that express moral blame, so emotional responses like resentment?
1: So I I guess, and this is a very basic question before we get to prevention, and it it, it circles down to the beginning, but there are going to be people who listen to that comment and say, well, the standard for war crimes is that people don't don't like it or don't feel morally regarded, but isn't anyone who is shot and killed in war a person who doesn't like it and doesn't feel that they've been regarded morally? What's the difference between the war crimes that people aren't sufficiently regarding other folks as agents and when you kill somebody?
3: Well, some people would argue that if you're an illegitimate aggressor, and maybe all aggression is illegitimate, but let's say Nazi Germany, they're fighting an illegitimate war effort. You might think that all of the killing that they do is is morally objectionable, can't be morally justified. And in a way, all the killing that they do might count as war crimes. That's not the standard perspective. The standard perspective is that some people are c- are appropriate targets. Some people can lawfully be killed. So what we would say is that if that were our view, what we would say is that those killings don't treat people in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. You're permissibly treated as a target, so my killing you doesn't uh, doesn't express an objectionable kind of disregard for your moral standing, because you don't have the standing to object to being targeted. But everybody that we're thinking of at least agrees that you do have standing, that everybody has standing when they're a civilian to object to being targeted, that most people most of the time have standing to object to being tortured, to being raped, etc. So as long as you agree with us that those are illegitimate treatments, we're going to encourage you to agree with us that blame is proper in those uh, contexts. Now, if you think that all war is illegitimate, all killing in war is illegitimate, then you might apply our account of blameworthiness and you're going to get the result that there's much more blame than even we think there is. And that's uh, that's fine.
2: Yeah, there's nothing necessarily incompatible. I mean, it's not the case that all cases of inflicting suffering display a lack of regard for someone. I mean, even in cases think about like self defence, right, is a classic case. We, you know, and there's lots of different views about self defense obviously, but the general idea is that look, if, if someone is attacking me and they're attacking me unjustly, then if I use lethal force against them because I have to, I haven't violated their rights or treated them with a lack of respect because they, through their behaviour, sort of lost standing to object to my use of defensive force. So, you know, so and again obviously if you Hold a pacifist view, you're going to say even in that case, killing is wrong. But you know the standard view tends to be something like, yeah, not not all cases of killing uh, show an an inappropriate or objectionable lack of moral regard for the person who killed. So it's not just purely from the perspective of the person who is suffering here. It's 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 more about the kind of whether there's a sort of agreement about whether we you know whether we agree that these kinds of behaviours show lack of moral regard. And we recognize that that is itself raises a lot of questions. Now, that's why we kind of focus on cases where we feel like there's pretty good consensus, for example, that rape as a weapon of war is an objectionable form of treatment. Like we, we sort of deliberately choose cases where we feel that we feel confident in saying that right. there is agreement here.
1: So we have we have like the, the concentric circles, right? And the larger right. question is the, the just war theory. We had an episode of just war, I think, in season three with Michael Walzer. Mm-hmm. And so that answers the question of when when war is is morally justifiable. Within that is the distinction between combatants and non-combatants, who you're allowed to target and why you're allowed to target. Within that of the combatants, you have how you can treat combatants and when. And you are looking at the cases where everyone agrees that um, uh that this was wrong why is it wrong who is held responsible and how do we stop it in the future so then let's go to that last question which is what can we do to prevent people from engaging in war crimes in the future
2: well we we sort of at the end of the book we kind of float some suggestions with the understanding that you know this is something that would itself require a lot more research but i mean in in our view i mean there's a couple of things that we think our account shows one is that strategies for preventing war crimes that just focus on heat of battle crimes are not going to be at all useful in preventing the uh, institutionalised war crimes like genocide and torture programmes, right? If you're just focusing about, well, let's make soldiers more resilient to combat stress, then maybe that is going to help soldiers... Um, hold up better under very stressful combat conditions, but that's a tiny fraction of war crimes. So so we do think that approaches to prevention, that focus just on kind of soldier resilience, are going to miss the mark. Instead, we think it's really important that military training actually acknowledges and understands the ways in which um, these sort of broader justifications can come to distort moral thinking in a military context, leading to the justification of torture. So that, I think, I mean, I think basically it means that military forces have to be willing to confront the fact that, you know, so-called good people can do war crimes, you know, that that the American military can come commit war crimes and and use case studies and discuss that as part of military training. Um, But secondly, I think one of the crucial things is that there has to be legal accountability. And, you know, it's a it's a... it's a it's a shameful fact that very few perpetrators of war crimes are ever held legally accountable. So again, the US torture program, the only people who served any jail time were a couple of people who were in the a couple of the Abbeu Guards, despite the you know significant evidence of this the architect of this torture program coming from you know very high up in the administration. So you know without a real commitment to accountability, I, I do think that it's going to be difficult to prevent to continue to prevent war crimes.
3: Another um, thing that we mentioned is the, um, so just to play off something that Jessica was saying, occasionally you hear that what we need to do to prevent war crimes is to instill virtues in soldiers, maybe the stoic virtues, and virtues of self-control in particular. But as we point out in the book, that's problematic because it's self-control That can precisely enable somebody to carry out a war crime. They can can think about Milgram's subjects again, the ones who didn't want to do the thing, but they did it anyway. If you can get somebody – to, if somebody has a great deal of self-control, then they what they may be doing is fighting against their own moral impulses. And had those moral impulses held sway, they might have avoided doing the wrong thing. But through the exercise of a kind of self-control, they've actually been led to to do something wrong. And also, it would be helpful. And it's, it's problematic because what I'm going to say is orthogonal to military discipline. But it would be helpful if war colleges were places where uh, – Disagreement was was right. celebrated. That is right. that's a good point. Yeah, but, but that seems um, unlikely. But uh, yeah, it's a, another point that Jessica was making. The, the The idea that getting people to see that people like them can do these crimes, people on their side can do that can do them, um, that seems important. It's, it's,
1: it's interesting because um, the argument against virtues is is Kant's argument, right, that, that the the virtuous uh, evil villain is that much more evil. Yeah, the, trice, the coolness yeah. of the right. scoundrel is right. made yeah. more
3: abominable exactly. in our eyes. And I mean yeah.
2: certainly in, in torture training manuals from say the Khmer Rouge, self-control and discipline are pl- praised as virtues of good torturers. Right so yeah there's no guarantee that self-control or discipline will prevent torture when they're praised as virtues of good torturers.
1: That that would lead to an entirely oh, other yeah. episode <laughs> um uh, and 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 actually the virtues of war uh, William James is the moral equivalent of war this is a tremendous discussion that I'm sure your perspective would offer incredible insights. Unfortunately, we are out of time, and so we have to stop with the question unanswered. Imagine that. Um, Jessica, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Why.
2: Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.
1: You've been listening to Jessica Wolfendale and Matt Talbert and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back with a few thoughts right after this.
0: Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org.
1: You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We were talking with Jessica Wolfendale and Matthew Talbert about war crimes and their book, War Crimes, Causes, Excuses, and Blame. You know, there was a question at one point in history, are there war crimes? But that's been settled. There are. They're recognized internationally. They're recognized morally. And so then the question becomes, what do we do about them? How do we identify a war crime? When is it a war crime and when is isn't? And who is responsible? The cliched answer, I was just following orders, is inadequate. Because yes, you follow people's orders when you're in the military, but there are orders you shouldn't follow. There are circumstances in which you interpret the order. There are circumstances in which you have independent decision-making powers. All of these things are incredibly complicated because The environment of war, the environment of the military, pushes people to be and do certain things. But if that's all they were, if all a soldier was was a product of the environment, then we would give up all of their personhood, and we can't. We can't do that because soldiers are people, and they do make mistakes, and they do have values. What Jessica and Matt wanted to point out was that soldiers act on their values. Sometimes the value is preserve their own life over others, which is of course understandable in many instances. Sometimes those values are, these people are hateful and I want to torture them. I want to hurt them. Sometimes those values are, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to do what's in front of me. Who knows what is going on in an individual's head. To say in advance that they are not responsible for what they do is to take away the agency that makes them unique people. War crimes must be investigated on a case-by-case basis. And the best way to do that, Jessica and Matt point out, is to focus on those instances that are not controversial, those instances that we know people acted incorrectly, that we know that they violated the law and moral standards, that they did not regard their victims with adequate moral regard. If we look at that and then we investigate why and how, then perhaps we can figure out how to stop it in the future. And ultimately, that's the goal, right? We may never be able to stop war. Maybe we will. Who knows? It doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So instead, we have to regard the forces of war and figure out how to change and affect those. Do you tamp down on people's bigotry? Do you stop thinking of the enemy as a hateful animal? Do you treat your prisoners with a certain kind of respect? These are the questions. These are the issues that come out of the discussion. And it is a deep and a good discussion, even though it is a dark discussion. When I finished my monologue, I mentioned to my wife, this is a dark one. And she said, how could it be otherwise? Any discussions of war, any discussions of war crime is going to be an unhappy discussion. But it leads to the optimistic possibility that somewhere down the line, these things will disappear. And if we take one step closer to that, we've done a good day's work. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you.
0: Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Lua e Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.